Morning, church. Good to see everybody. If you're a guest, my name's Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here at the church and eager to open God's word with you. During first service singing, I, for whatever reason, was reminded uh, we haven't passed a plate in a long time. We got out, we got out of the habit. Have y'all noticed this? We, we, I can't remember the last time we passed a plate. Uh, an offering is what I'm talking about. Some of y'all forget what's a plate. Uh, COVID, we just got out of the habit, and, um, and many in our congregation segued really s- seamlessly to giving online. I think, I'm going to guess, 90% of the giving at Glenn Bible Church is done online. That is the um, safest, most secure way to give. Uh, but if you were to come prepared to give on Sunday mornings, there are there are offering boxes in the foyer just outside this back wall. You could drop your offering there. I say this simply because uh, we're in a good spot financially, and I don't want to wait till we're in a bad spot financially to bring up offering again. It's, been just, it's just been a long time. And the reason we would bring it up is because um, giving is an important part of a life of worship. I'm going to talk about worship a little bit today. And giving is an important part, financially giving to the, to the move of God's kingdom um, is an important part of worship. And money is maybe uh, top one or two idols in our county. And one of the best ways to combat the idol of money, which is, you know, leads us to greed, is to give, is to, give to the purposes of God. Where your heart is, there your uh, where your uh, money is, no, what am I, where your treasure is, there. I'm glad y'all are awake. What would I do without you? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the context there was giving. Uh, and I am glad that you're here with me. I, you know, I sit on the front and I, and I'll, I, during worship I stand and I'll turn my ear to the congregation. It is so encouraging to hear you sing. Um, one of my favorite things to say is we shouldn't just have one preacher on a Sunday morning. There should be hundreds of preachers, and then someone gets up to preach God's Word. But it's so encouraging to hear you guys sing. All right. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. We hope you feel quickly at home uh, at Glowham Bible Church. If you're a guest, uh, this is, it's a good morning to be visiting. In fact, if you're new to Glowham Bible Church over the last few years, this morning, as well as the next few weeks, will be, I think, uniquely helpful for those that are new at Aglaon Bible Church. As we're going to pause in our sermon series out of Deuteronomy to do what might be called some spring cleaning, we want to freshen up a little bit on the mission and the vision uh, of Glenelg Bible Church, something we haven't done in several years. I can't remember the last time we addressed these issues, at least not the way we're going to address them over the next four weeks. Uh, but this is, invi- this is a vitally important topic as we gather as a, to know why we gather as a community. In short, we want to ask and answer the question, what are we doing here? I-, I see some of you guys yawning. Why did you get out of bed? Why bother going to church? What are we doing? What's the purpose? If you've been here for some time, then you're probably able to give an answer uh, to some degree, at least a, a little bit to this question, why are we here? If you're uh, really attentive, maybe you've noticed the slogan in the Welcome Center. 
Helping people follow Jesus. It's in bright, giant letters. So we, you know, to, to capture kind of the, the, the elevator speech about why we're doing what we're doing, we're, we're here to help people follow Jesus. But what does that mean? Even more to the point, how do we get it done? How do we help each other follow Jesus? After all, every good evangelical church says that they're making disciples. That's what it means to follow Jesus. A disciple is one who's learning from Jesus and, and following after him in their lives. But how are disciples made? In Jesus' first century world, the disciple-making process was well known. For example, when Simon Peter and his brother Andrew heard from Jesus the invitation, come follow me, they knew exactly what, that, what Jesus meant by that. They dropped their nets, they were fishermen, they followed after him. They knew exactly what the invitation entailed. He was inviting them to disrupt their lives. Have our lives been disrupted by Jesus? That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's one indication you're following him. If your life has been disrupted by him. When Jesus said to Simon and Andrew, come follow me, there was this invitation to stop what you're doing and give your, your full focus to learning from Jesus. It was an invitation to enter into one of the first century's most intimate of relationships. The invitation was quite literally to learn from the rabbi, but also to follow him around, to follow the teacher as he made his way into communities and taught crowds. Disciples would actually parade around behind their master, looking to emulate him in every aspect of life, looking to emulate his conduct, reflect his character, champion his concerns. Who are we emulating? Whose concerns do we champion? Whose character are we being formed into? So complete was a disciple's commitment to the rabbi in that first century context, it became the defining element of their person. What is the defining element of our person? I ask because what it means to follow Jesus has not changed in over 2,000 years. It's not changed. The invitation is still an invitation to disrupt your life Enter one of the, the universe's most intimate of relationships with your creator, God. Emulate his character, his conduct, champion his concerns. The invitation is still very much for Jesus to become the defining element of your person. Kierkegaard said, now by God's grace, I'll become fully me. Yes, we'll become fully us. I'll become fully Kelly. But the defining element of Kelly is that he follows the master, Jesus, Lord willing. What's the defining element of our lives? 
Because Jesus is still looking, still looking, 21 centuries later, for men and women who will attach themselves to him, learn from him, reflect his person, and carry out his purposes. That's what we mean when we say we're helping people follow Jesus. That's what the elders have in mind. That's what the staff has in mind when they say we want to help people follow Jesus. We want to help people emulate Christ's person and carry out Christ's purposes in life. We want to help people reorganize their lives around the defining element of the God-man, Jesus, the one who is still raised. He's still risen. I always, second week after Easter, I always want to say, he's still risen. He's still risen indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. So this is what our focus is as a church, helping people follow Jesus, helping Jesus become the defining element of our lives. This is our focus because it was Jesus' focus. This is our focus because it was the focus he gave to his first disciples, that is, to go make more disciples. Well-known passage on the screen, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Just before his ascension, right, Christ is raised, then he spends a 40-day period on the earth, coming and going among his disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God. Then he ascends bodily, and they see him go. Just before he goes back into the heavens, he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, because I have all authority, I have all authority in heaven and on earth, do these things. Go and make disciples of all nations. Be about this. Do this. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And then he's taken up. He'd given them an explicit instructions to wait for the gift my father wants to give you. So they hung out in Jerusalem in an extended prayer meeting. Then the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2, descends the gift given to everyone who's trusting in Christ. Along with the Spirit comes gifts that we're to utilize. We'll talk a little bit more about that in the next few weeks. By those gifts, we're to be doing something particularly. We'd be making disciples. 21 centuries later, Jesus' followers are still doing the same thing, still making disciples. But what does that process look like today? How will we ever know if we're a disciple? How will we ever know if Cologne Bible Church has any success, any fruit, to use a biblical language, in disciple-making? How will we ever know if we make one? In the fall of 2004... In an effort to answer that question, what are we up to? What's a disciple look like? How will we ever know if we make one? The elders of Glow and Bible Church scoured the New Testament together. The goal was to identify the attributes of a disciple. How is God forming people when he's making disciples? What can we expect the Spirit to be doing in us as he's forming us into the character of Christ? That was what the elders were looking for in the New Testament. After 18 months of study and prayer and discussion, we identified eight attributes of a disciple. Now, we admit there could be 80 attributes of a disciple. These eight we're confident of, they're on the screen. 
A disciple is one who receives salvation by grace. A disciple is not one who's running really hard in an effort to follow after Jesus and merit heaven. No, a disciple who is one who's receiving the gift of God's grace shown towards us in Christ. A disciple is one who is worshiping in life continually. Yes, we sing here. We call this a worship service, but worship is much grander, greater, and more beautiful than getting in a room together like this once a week. Worship is, is what we're called to do. God is looking for worshipers, John chapter 4, who worship in spirit and truth. Worship is a 24-7, 365 activity of bringing God glory. A disciple is one who depends on Jesus' power fully. A disciple is one who's had the Acts 2 experience of the Spirit coming into their life and empowering them to bear fruit. There's this vertical dependence. A disciple is one who has a horizontal experience of connecting in fellowship deeply. There are no solo disciples. Disciple, discipleship's a team effort. Who's on your team? Hopefully this room is your teammates. We're cheering one another on to love and good deeds. A disciple's one who obeys. Jesus is teaching, right? It's in the Great Commission. A disciple's one who serves, identifies their gifts and employs them in service to others. For the glory of Christ, a disciple is one who loves others selflessly as we've been loved in Christ. A disciple is one who pursues the lost intentionally. A graphic designer helped us make what is, was simply a laundry list into something more appealing. It's on the screen. We refer to it as the disciple-making target. What are we aiming at as a church? Helping people follow Jesus. The bullseye how we know if we ever make one? We'll know if people are increasing in, in, if they're increasingly understanding God's grace, living lives of worship, depending on Christ's power, connecting in community, obeying, serving, loving others selflessly, and pursuing the lost intentionally. That's what we're aiming at. That's what we believe the Holy Spirit is forming based on our New Testament study. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to work in our lives. These eight attributes, again, there could be 80 attributes. We could quibble over whether we left something out. I'm sure we did. These eight we're sure of. After identifying the eight attributes, the elders next worked to answer the question, what type of church produces men and women with those eight attributes? To answer that question, we went back to Scripture. Another 12 months of prayer and study and discussion in the New Testament to figure out what type of church produces people that are increasing in those eight attributes. We came up with four activities. Those activities are proclaiming the gospel, restoring the broken, equipping believers, and sending out disciples. Proclaim, restore, equip, send. In short, a church that wants to help people emulate the character and conduct and concerns of Christ will proclaim, restore, equip, and send. Over time, we notice that these four attributes couple well with the, uh, these four activities couple well with the eight attributes. In other words, we notice that there's an internal coherence in the, New Testament, in the New Testament, between who God wants us to become and what the church is supposed to be doing. Surprise, surprise, right? <laughs> that only makes sense. 
who God wants us to become and what the church is to be doing complement each other. If the church does what it's supposed to do, then we will increasingly become men and women that represent Christ in the world, his character, conduct, concerns, his person, his purposes. People will see in us increasingly Jesus and hear from us about Jesus increasingly. Noticing this internal coherence between the activities and the attributes, what the church is to be doing and who the people of God are to be coming, we asked the, the illustrator, the graphic designer, to work on the target some more. Here's the completed target. I want to I wanna walk us through this. If somebody comes to Glowen Bible Church and says, why am I here? What's the purpose in life? Why was I born? Why am I breathing? Am I just taking up space? We say, no, the purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Now, if you recognize that, you know that we stole it. It's the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It's a creedal statement from the 1700s. It's the first answer to the first question of the catechism. What is the chief end of man? Why am I here? We're here to glorify God and enjoy him forever. If that person says, great, I'm on board. I want to enjoy God. I, I want to glorify God. I want to fulfill my purpose. I want to find purposefulness. Who brings the greatest glory to God and enjoys him the most? The person that hits the bullseye the person that follows Jesus. Now, is there enjoyment in God outside faith in Christ? Yes. Uh, God sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. So uh, unbelievers can, uh, people not following Christ can bring glory to God as well. But who brings the most glory to God, who most thoroughly enjoys life, enjoys him forever? the one who's following Jesus, the one who hits the bullseye. Great, the person says, what, is, what does it mean to follow Jesus? Who, who, how do I follow Jesus? And who am I becoming as a follower of Jesus? And we have the eight attributes, a person who receives salvation by grace, worships in life continually, depends, connects, obeys, serves, loves, and pursues. What type of church can help me hit the bullseye? can help me as a follower bring the most glory to God and enjoy him forever. A church that's proclaiming, restoring, equipping, and sending. And so when we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim that salvation's by grace and that all men and women are to live lives of worship. We've coupled these attributes to, with this activity. And when we restore the broken, pay attention here because everybody in this room's broken and in need of restoration. Some of us are circling the same old sin and wondering why we can't uh, break out of it. Some of us are wondering, how do I live differently? It happens in this quadrant. And we as staff and elders refer to the four quadrants of the disciple-making target. If you're stuck in sin or you want a more godly life, it happens here. Primarily, not exclusively, but primarily. We are restored as broken people through a vertical dependence on the Holy Spirit and a horizontal connection with one another. And let me just give a shout out really quickly. Here's where counseling happens. 
Here's where we go to gifted men and women and say, I'm stuck. And if need be, we pay money. The giggles. I'm trying to drive this home because I constantly meet with people who don't want to go to counseling but want to get unstuck. Health is not cheap. I would find a Christian counselor if you need a referral, be happy to provide one. Someone that that sees Christ for who he is and can point you towards Christ. But by God's design, God's gifted some people to walk us out of the woods. God has gifted people. We see all the time churches are quick to say, well, there's gifts of leadership and there's gifts of preaching, right? And there's gifts of administration. Folks, there are gifts of helping us when we're lost in our own chaos, or when we come out of dysfunctional families and can't break the cycle and find functionality. It happens right here, restoring the broken. Is, it, is all I need to sit with a gifted counselor? No, you need the Holy Spirit in your life. This is why we do small groups right here. This is, if you're wondering why we get together outside of church, it's because we're broken and God gives us to one another to cheer one another on to love and good deeds. All right, equipping. What do we equip people to do? Obey and serve. When we send out people on trips or when you leave the building today, your primary commission is to love others selflessly and pursue the lost intentionally, to be ambassadors for Christ. This is compassion ministry. This is conversion ministry. It's not one or the other. It's both and. We offer a cup of cold water and a verbal witness of the gospel. We don't just offer starving bodies the gospel. And we, and we don't offer them uh, only food. We offer compassion and an explicit witness of the gospel. Is this making sense? In the 1940s and 50s crusades, uh, there was some pushback on the witness of the gospel and the revivals that were going on. Uh, that, that hungry mouths make for poor listeners. And it's true. Jesus fed 5,000 in a single sitting and he talked about the kingdom. We're to be tangibly demonstrating the gospel and offering a verbal witness. This is our care center once a month. Tangibly meeting the needs of others and witnessing for Christ. It's a both and. All right, so that's the target. This morning, I want to drill down on proclaiming the gospel, the first of the eight, uh, first of the uh, four activities. When we proclaim the gospel, we proclaim salvation by grace, and we call men and women to live lives of worship, to disrupt how they were formerly living, turn from sin, and come and learn from the master Jesus how to live best, to bring glory to God and enjoy him. Another word for proclaiming the gospel is preaching. Preaching was the charge given to the first disciples as they were sent out on short-term mission trips. Preaching was the primary tool of the church's early ministry efforts or a primary tool to spread the gospel. Peter explains to those in the house of Cornelius that he has commanded us to preach and everybody in this room is to be a, a preacher of the gospel in both word and deed. It's not one or the other. People are to see Christ in us and they're to hear about Christ from us. 
Some of us have abdicated our responsibility about proclaiming, that is, verbally opening our mouths and talking about God's goodness towards us in Christ. Some of us have abdicated that responsibility thinking, well, they'll see Christ in me. Well, I hope they do. But Christ also came proclaiming the kingdom, proclaiming God's grace. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. And we're to open our mouths and talk about God's goodness towards us. We're to be ambassadors. Ambassadors don't just show up on foreign soil. They show up and work, talk. Paul wrote about this activity. He said, Jews demand a si signs. Greeks look for wisdom. We preach, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block, it throws Jews, they can't get their mind around it, foolishness to Gentiles, that is someone crucified on our behalf, but to those whom God has called, in other words, those whom God is saving, it's going to make a world of difference to them. They're going to get it. And he's calling both Jews and Gentiles, Greeks alike, Christ is the power of God, he's the wisdom of God, he's the beauty of God incarnate, according to Colossians 1.7. So we preach Christ crucified for us. Some people don't like to hear it, and so we can get hesitant to say it. Yes, we needed someone to die for us. We needed someone to die for us because we can't merit salvation on our own. We're alienated from God because of our sin, and the sin sacrifice was needed. Sadly, some are tempted to proclaim a message other than Christ crucified. Christ was crucified for human sin. Some find that message foolish. Some find it offensive. Folks, some find it saving. Sadly, some wanting to avoid a, a message that is found foolish by some and offensive by others, they do away with the cross. They preach instead simply human wisdom, your best life now type of preaching. These seven, do these seven things for a better, do these five things for a better. Some messages turn in only to, they become only encouragement or inspiration. And there's nothing wrong with wanting encouragement and inspiration. I want both. But if we're not careful, they can easily crowd out the message of the cross. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. We cannot save ourselves. And we're consigned to an, er an eternity separated from our creator. Apart from Christ, we can't find our purpose. We can't bring our creator glory. We can't bear the fruit that we've been called to bear. We can't know the joy that our Creator would want us to know. In fact, Paul warned Pastor Timothy that such would be the case. Some will move away from preaching Christ crucified. He wrote to Pastor Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, for the time will come when men and women will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. And folks, some messages are hard to hear. They'll turn their ears away from truth and turn aside to myths, to lies, to what's flattering that strokes our ego. Day after day, what do we need? Week after week, what do we need? We need 
the gospel. We need to preach the message of Christ crucified, that apart from him we can do nothing, through him we can do all things. Yet some get bored with that and ask for more pra- a more practical message. Folks, there's nothing more practical than the gospel. We need to rehearse the gospel on Sunday mornings, in our small groups, in our living rooms, around our kitchen tables with our children. It's because of the, gr- the grace of God shown towards us in Christ that we can parent without fear. There's nothing more practical than the gospel. There's nothing more applicable to life than the gospel, what God has done for us in Christ. Because of God's love for us in Christ, we can parent without fear. I won't ask for a show of hands how many parents feel overwhelmed by what they're facing with their kiddos. But God's perfect love for us shown in Christ casts out fear. Because of God's love shown towards us in Christ, we can love our spouse unconditionally, just as we have been loved. While we were yet sinners, Christ came for us. We had no interest in him. Christ came for us. We can show that type of love because who? Because of what God has done for us. What he's done, we sang. Because of what he's done for us in Christ, we can show our spouse unconditional love. There's nothing more practical than the gospel. I think of our work environments, how competitive the American work environment is. Yet because of what God has done for us in Christ, we can serve our coworkers selflessly. We can be true companions. We can bless others. We can stop thinking of win-lose realities because God's got our back. If God's for us, who can be against us? There's nothing more practical than the gospel. Because of the gospel, we need not serve the God of mammon like the rest of the world is, the God of money. We can store up for ourselves treasure in heaven. We can give generously because he has lavished his love upon us in Christ. There's nothing more practical than the gospel. Because of the gospel, we can discipline our bodies diligently. You need not, and we're not, because of who Christ in us, victims of our homes of origin or our hormones. Christ in us, the hope of glory. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in you if you're trusting Christ. Just as Christ moved towards the cross, we can put to death, Colossians 3, therefore whatever belongs to the earthly nature, sexual immorality, lust, evil desires, and greed, put it to death. You can discipline, the biblical word is flesh, You need not be a victim. There's nothing more practical than the gospel. Everything changes because Christ is raised. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel's proclamation gives us a a window into the activity that, that we're called to in this first activity, proclaiming the gospel. 
Israel had wandered from God into idolatry and God compared them to a valley, picture a, a beautiful valley, littered with dry bones. That is dead folks who had deceased, but not only deceased, but had withered and their bones are brittle and dry, scattered across this valley. And he says to Ezekiel, speak to those dry bones. I'm going to do something, folks. This is the activity of proclaiming the gospel. It's speaking the truth of God in Christ over dead, dying situations. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make breath enter you. You'll come to life. I'll attach tendons. Notice the activity of God here. It's not something I'm doing, we're doing. But we're talking about what God said he wants to do and what God is doing. I will attach tendons to him and make flesh come upon him and cover you with skin. I'll put breath in you and you'll come to life. Then you'll know that I'm the Lord. Some of us have situations that feel overwhelming, like speaking life to dry bones. But we're called to proclaim the gospel as a people. We're called to speak the truth of what God has done for us in Christ to overwhelming circumstances. What do we say about our ability to resist sin? Do we say, I'm never going to beat this addiction? Do we say, I can't change this habit, this pattern? Or do we say that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us? What's coming out of your mouth regarding what you face? What are you proclaiming? And is it in line with who Christ is and what he's done? What do you say about your marriage? Do you say that you're destined to live distant from your spouse or do you proclaim that the two have become one and what God's joined together, let nobody separate? Do you proclaim that Christ gave marriage to be a living, breathing, walking, talking example of his love for the church and the church's love for the Savior? Ephesians 5. What do you say about your finances? Do you proclaim that God will meet all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus? What do you say about illness? Do you say that you're destined to suffer purposelessly and without hope? Or do you say that these present sufferings aren't worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us? What comes out of our mouths? Do we have the boldness to both pray for healing, as we're told to do, and believe that if healing doesn't come, that his grace is sufficient for us, what comes out of our mouths? What do we say about our future? Do we proclaim that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works? How do you think about your future? Do you think, do you conceive that God has a calling on my life and he's gifted me? I am his workmanship. The Greek is poema. I'm God's poem. God's writing a beautiful story with my life. He's weaving the threads. 
He's gifted me and called me to accomplish something. I'm created in Christ Jesus to do something. How do you think about your life? And what do you say? What comes out of our mouths? Proclaiming the gospel may sound like little more than positive thinking. And I will admit that it is more positive than negative to say that God is for us. But this is not simply the power of positive thinking. There is a reality to affirming what God has said. There is a supernatural power available to us. Do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's going to be hard to transform your mind, Romans 12, if what comes out of your mouth doesn't change. What are you proclaiming? When people rub up against you, what do they come away hearing, believing, thinking? How are you influencing people? Do they come away being cheered on? Are we the aroma? Do they smell Christ when they come up close to you? The aroma of Christ? Do they come away encouraged to fight the good fight? We'll have a hard time no longer being conformed to the patterns of this world if we don't change what we say. Quoting God's word, quoting the truths of scripture allows God to accomplish. What if Ezekiel had never stepped to the plate and never addressed the valley of dry bones? God would have given that joyous opportunity to somebody else. God's will will not ultimately be thwarted. The question on the table is, how will I know God's joy? How will I bring him increasing glory? How will I become all that God has intended for me to be, created in Christ Jesus, how will I find my place in the kingdom and bear all the fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold? How, how will I bear all the fruit I've been called to bear? And I guarantee that opening our mouths and making sure what we say is in line with Scripture will impact whether or not we understand grace and live lives of worship. What we say must be in line with who Christ is. Paul said in Romans 10, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's great to sit in church once a week. I know many of you listen to podcasts being encouraged by God's word. In the armor of God, there's only one obviously offensive weapon. It's the sword. And it's the sword of what? Y'all remember? The sword of the Spirit. Keep going. Which is the Word of God. Some of us live with our swords in their sheath. It's not going to do us much good as men and women trying to fight the good fight. What comes out of our mouths? Let me pray for us. And in just hey, and as we're going to close with a couple songs here. And uh, um, Mark and Sue are going to be down front to pray. Come down for prayer. 
If you're stuck in the same old pattern or you want to change a habit of speech or maybe you just want to celebrate with something, let Mark and Sue pray over you. Let them speak the word of God over you and pray for you. Let's bow our heads together. Father, your goodness to us is immeasurable in Christ. You have done more than we can ask or imagine through Christ. Would you open our hearts and minds to this reality? And would you open our mouths to this reality? In the name of Jesus, amen.